Are you a nonprofit professional who's feeling overwhelmed and burnt out? Well, welcome to the Lead with Heart podcast. I am your host, Haley Cooper. On this podcast, we will share stories of leadership, courage, and empathy that'll help you learn to take care of yourself, your staff, organization, and community. You will hear from nonprofit leaders who have been in your shoes and have learned best practices to raise more revenue and make a greater impact. Let's thrive together. Hello, everyone. We are back here today. I am Healy Cooper, the founder of this podcast, with Interview Series. And today I have Zoop Palasco. And I am so excited to have him here because I first met him when I was doing the social impact leadership program through Cal State Fullerton. And it was a really impactful process in my journey as a leader and really understanding every aspect of what it takes to be a nonprofit organization and a nonprofit leader. Zoot Velasco is the executive director of the Friends of Fullerton College Foundation. He's the director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics. He's the professor of business and marketing at California State University Fullerton. He's the professor of nonprofit management and leadership at Cal State Fullerton and California Polytechnic University Institute Pomona, the host of the nationally ranked 501c3 B podcast. And he's author of three books, which I have two of them and they are amazing. Small to Large, Growing Social Impact Organizations, The First 100 Days Leading Small Nonprofits Out of the Wilderness, and The History of the Muckenthaler Cultural Center. And so thank you, Zoop, for being here. And I'm going to let you share a little bit more of your history and your background and how you got here today. Sure. Quick little correction there. It's the 501c3 BS podcast. That's kind of... Yes, there you go. (laughs) It's all about taking the BS out of our industry. (laughs) I love that. So yes, I run the podcast. I lead a foundation. I'm still the interim director for the center that I was running at Cal State Fullerton and still running the programs till the end of the year. And I'm sure they'll hire a new director at some point soon. And then I also teach. But besides all that, this is my third career. I ran, my first career was a professional break dancer and actor. I did that for 12 years. And then for 23 years, I ran cultural centers from prisons to communities to college environments. So I've been, you know, first involved in the arts and now involved in business programming through nonprofit business. So it's my third career and I'm happy to have done all of them. They've been fun and I wouldn't change a thing. And I love that background that you were a professional, a break dancer. <laughs> it's the first thing people think of when they see me, right? Because these, <laughs> these people are not seeing me, but I do not look like a professional break dancer. I look more like I should be out on a golf course or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fun it's a fun fact about you that I think is very unique. So I'm a certified fundraising executive. So I think of traditional fundraising as going out and stewarding and building relationships with donors. But what I loved about your strategy with fundraising, it was more about resource gathering. So can you talk a little bit about your approach to fundraising and resource gathering? Yeah. So, you know, I I started as a traditional fundraiser. As a CEO of small organizations, you have to be the fundraiser too. And I went out and got my CFRE and wrote you know, grants 
I, I've raised over $30 million and mostly in grant funding. So I understand how all of that works. But at some point, running small organizations, I came to a realization that a lot of the things that people from large organizations tell us they do and, and what works for them does not work for small organizations. And part of the reason for that is because a lot of fundraising is done through what Jan Masso, a great light in our field, said one time called the industrial fundraising complex. You know, that there's this giant plethora of organizations out there that's job is to feed off of nonprofits and do fundraising consulting for us. And of course, if they're going to make money off of us, then there has to be this whole wisdom that what you should do is go out and get grants and do big galas and do auctions and all these things that we do regularly. And what I found when I started doing research on these things is that it's a lot of myth and a lot of BS, which is kind of why I started my podcast. And when I actually did the research on what small organizations grew during the Great Recession against the trend, well, what I found was that none of them grew from traditional fundraising, that every one of them grew from earned income streams and, and innovative, well, some of them by expanding their business through, through government grants, which is an earned income stream, some of them by doing social enterprise, and some of them by doing fees for service, you know, just upping the way that they get fees for service or the, the cost of their fees for service. And, you know, one of the great examples of that was there's a soccer organization, youth soccer organization that deals mostly with undocumented parents that want their kids to play soccer. And they grew wildly during the recession by just being the best soccer organization and recruiting parents from other soccer organizations that were folding during the recession. And every dollar they got was from fees for service. And these were not big fees because these are undocumented parents that aren't, you know, exactly wealthy people. You know, they're, they're people who are doing very low wage jobs generally. And they were able to really grow during the recession just from fees for service. So, you know, it's this myth that, oh, we go out, we hire a fundraiser and we're going to make all this money on grants or we're going to make all this money on a big gala. And the fact is that most galas, when I did the research, most galas, about 90% of galas actually lose money, but it's not recorded that way because they're not taking their staff costs into account. And their staff costs are enormous because staff spend sometimes an entire year working on a gala. Don't get me started. I will be here for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea of using other models. Can you talk a little bit? I know you you did a lot of research and I, I believe one of your books is about your findings through the organizations coming through the recession that were successful. And one of them you mentioned had a social enterprise. So can you talk a little bit about that before we transition over to the other leadership aspects that you're so knowledgeable about? Yeah. So, you know, social enterprise is, is basically taking a business standpoint in, in how you run your organization with the bottom line being not necessarily profit, but the bottom line being purpose and your mission, but doing it in a sustainable way. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I just took over a new foundation at Fullerton College and 
I did not want to do the big gala that they had done every year. And I did not want to do, you know, a lot of the traditional fundraising things. And when I laid it out to my new boss, who also started the same time I did, he's like, yeah, I understand that. I get that. I said, you know, what we need to do is create an army of fundraisers out there fundraising for us by doing small events. So we have about eight divisions at the college. I'm encouraging each division to do their own fundraising event that we will consult on, but they'll do it. So it doesn't quite require a big gala or lots of meetings. They're small events they can do very easily. For example, the humanities department can do a poetry competition. The arts department is going to do a theater show with a a pre-show event for donors. The sports department can do a dinner with the athletes. The, The horticulture is going to do a farm dinner. So each department can do their own sustainable fundraiser they can do every year for scholarships in their department. Then the next part of it is we found out that there was this real need for students who graduate from our trades in the junior college level, community college, and there's a lot of trades there. And students who graduate from those trades, they don't have a way of getting jobs necessarily because some of those trades require them to kind of have an apprenticeship first or have a following first before they can get a job. Like if you're a cosmetologist, you're going to go rent a chair at a studio, at a hair studio, and then you're going to be bringing your clientele over. Well, what happens if you don't have any clientele? So what we're doing in that respect is creating an apprenticeship program for the trades where we're partnering with a social enterprise called San Jose Tire Hope Builders, which is Mm -hmm. in Santa Ana. And they have a temporary employment agency for for youth who need jobs. And we're partnering with them to do a temporary employment agency with employers of apprentices and hooking our students up with employers who want apprentices that will give them their 600 hours of apprenticeship. We'll take a cut from that. So will Hope Builders. It'll be 15% each that the employer pays extra like they would for any temp employment agency. And then our students will be introduced to a job. They'll have a paid internship or apprenticeship and then be able to leave there with an employer in their pocket or at least have that on their resume and maybe develop some kind of a following. So by doing that, we help the students and we also make it in a sustainable way where we're getting enough of a percentage that we can, and we've done the math by three years into it, it'll be a million dollar program, self-sustaining plus scholarships. And we're even doing a microfinance program for our drone pilots program. So, cause they have to buy a drone. So we're, we're helping them buy drones and then they pay it back in their apprenticeship. And then that goes to pay for someone else's drone. So it's a, it's a really cool model of self-sustaining. We're the first, I think, in the state, if not the country, to do it. And we're starting new apprenticeships like the drone pilot apprenticeship that hadn't existed before. So we're, we're doing our mission in a way that's sustainable. It's not like we're making a ton of money, but we're going to you know, definitely increase our footprint by at least a million dollars a year doing this program. And then we have some really cool other ideas. We have an empty building on campus that we're going to make into a salon for cosmetology and get them their uh, following so they can go out and rent a chair with a following. And that will be self-sustaining and paid for itself through enterprise. So those are just some examples, but 
I don't think there's there's a nonprofit out there that doesn't have a social enterprise available to them. And you know, there, I I ran a, a cultural center once in a, a, a part of Long Beach that was you know dealing with a lot of gang issues, and it's not a place that would you would think oh this is going to be a great social enterprise. But the one thing we had at that cultural center was we had a graffiti wall. And Hollywood wanted to always film in front of our graffiti wall. So we just charged them to do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you touched on a lot of important things. First, you touched on, I love that you're having of the divisions of the college to have their own intimate events. I think that is the way of the future. I think after we've the last three years of what we've experienced, not a ton of people are going to want to go to galas and go to 600, 300 person events. I think those people are seeking that community. People are seeking that networking and getting out of the house. But I think it's more in an intimate setting. So I love that you're really utilizing their expertise and what they're good at, like a farm dinner or some of the other events that you mentioned. I think that's such a valuable part to engage people and really bring it back to the mission. Because I think also in galas, it kind of, it's all frou-frou and big and sparkly and it gets away from the mission. So I love that you're doing that with those colleges. The other thing you mentioned that I think is important is the collaboration that we have with Tire San Jose. So can you talk a little bit about collaboration? I feel like a lot of nonprofits are scared to do it because they think that they're stealing resources from each other or competing for resources. So I believe you believe in collaboration and it's an important part of, you know, nonprofits. A lot of them are doing the same work. So how can we work better work together without having feel like we compete for the same dollars? Yeah. So when I, when I interviewed the people during the recession who grew from small to large, which is what my new book is about, it's called small to large. And that book is on Kendall Hunt Publishing. If, if you go to Kendall Hunt's website, you should be able to find it if you put my name in or, yeah, put my name in. You can also find it from my website, zoopalasco.com. Sorry, I didn't mean to do a plug there, but I did. I'll link it all <laughs> in the show in the show notes. Okay, great. When I did the research for, for the research project that ended up becoming the book, I asked people, you know, what it was that helped them grow. And the number one thing that everyone agreed upon, the first thing everyone said was strategic partnerships. And in every case, they were able to grow a lot of them through social enterprise, but all of them through social, through strategic partnerships by being able to not see themselves as an island, you know, and, and I, I hear this all the time from failing CEOs of organizations where the they'll hire me to come in as a consultant and they'll say, well, you know, I want to do this thing and I want to do it my way and nobody wants to help me with it. And then I'll find out that there's somebody else doing the exact same thing in the community, much better, much more established. And that every time somebody comes to help them, they throw them away because they, they're not doing it their way. And that's the kind of mindset of a failing nonprofit. And the mindset of these successful nonprofits is, let me go out to the community and find everyone who wants to help in this mission in any way they want to help. And, and I'll just support them to do it. And it's not about the ego of the founder. It's about how can we get the mission done? And those organizations tend to draw an army of people wanting to help. And 
a lot of them being other nonprofits or businesses or even government entities that want to support them and create these strategic partnerships. A great example of that is Solidarity in Fullerton. Solidarity started out as a $150,000 a year organization from family and friends and churches. And they ended up, you know, moving into the neighborhood that they that they wanted to serve because they were young people of color of privilege from another neighborhood of a nicer neighborhood. And they wanted to help the more challenged neighborhood in the city. So they moved in. I, I remember them telling me it was their first time ever having roaches and having to deal with that. And, you know, they started getting to know their neighbors and finding out who could help them. And the, during the recession, the summer camps got canceled by the city. So they partnered with the city and with business and with nonprofits to start a summer camp with no money. And it wasn't like they were out there writing grants. They just decided, hey, we're going to start this, even if we have to pay for everything ourselves or, you know, just by hook or by crook. They got people to donate time, materials, the park donated a space. And that led them into their first social enterprise, which was somebody donated some screen printing inks to make T-shirts, and they started a T-shirt making business. That business became a half million dollar a year business that they ended up selling to the kids. Basically, they let the kids have the business and it's still running today. And they ended up doing that with other businesses. But the whole point was they wouldn't have got anything done if they didn't do strategic partnerships. And when people think about competition, we don't have competition. If you're a nonprofit, and I hate to use the word nonprofit, if you're if you're a social enterprise organization or you're a social impact organization, your mission is to do something that nobody else is doing, or you, there's no reason for you to exist. So if you're not partnering with everybody else who can help you, schools and parks and business and other nonprofits then you're you're really not you're really not doing your job. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you you mentioned that, you know, solidarity they didn't have necessarily the funds, but they were able to go out and utilize other resources beyond revenue. And I think oftentimes nonprofits or social impact organizations get so stuck on that revenue line, the the money coming in that they forget that there's t- people offer time, talent, there are other resources. So can you give, I know you mentioned your example, but how can nonprofits really access those resources and really use them as a value add towards whatever they're trying to accomplish? Yeah. So that's the thing, you know, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world and we have a plethora of resources available to us that go untapped by a lot of organizations because they're too busy looking at funding. If you take your mindset out of, we have to find funding for this and just think about, okay, this is what we want to do. What's the easiest way to get it done? Then you'll find a whole bunch of resources and usually it's through strategic partnerships. So for, for example, if you're running a cultural center, like I used to run, and you want to do the best job at serving. We were we were trying to serve a community in Anaheim that's often ignored. You know, everybody thinks of Anaheim as a Latinx city, which it is, but it also has Little Arabia in Anaheim, which is filled with people who've come over as refugees from the different wars that we've been in over the last twenty years. And you have you know Somalians and Africans and. Middle Easterners from Iran and Iraq and 
all these different places that we've been in conflict with, in conflict with have come over as refugees and are living in this area of Anaheim. And they weren't really being served much outside of their own communities. So we wanted to do an arts program. We found that there was a library there that they all used. And we partnered with the library. We found the Boys and Girls Club wanted to serve the same community. So we partnered with them. We partnered with other people, the Museo. That led to some funding through the Community Foundation, all these partnerships, because funders take notice when you're doing collaborative partnerships. And it ended up leading to a STEAM program where we taught animation out of the library and got people really interested in design on computers. And we ended up having students that were wanting to do that as a, as a career, and they had no outlet for it because they didn't have Wi-Fi at home. They didn't have a computer at home. So we could loan them computers, get them Wi-Fi at the library, teach the classes there. And some of them went on to college in that field. So, you know, the, this was just like, here's a community we want to serve. What do we need to do to serve it? And there was no money involved at first. It all came together through the partnerships. And I think when people think that way, money just comes because the resources come when you find the partners and you and you figure out the work to make to serve the mission. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even in grant applications, they ask who you're collaborating with. And I think generally people don't think of it like like strategic partnerships when they're asking about collaboration. But I think it is an opportunity to really advance the mission. I know after I took your course, I approached the program director and they had all these needs. And I was like, just tell me what you need. I'm going to go to volunteers. I'm going to see what businesses have opportunities beyond the revenue raising. And it just changed the dynamics and allowed us to be more proactive in how we approached our programming because we knew we had extensive amount of resources in the community, whether that's other nonprofits or businesses that were already partners with us, just calling them and seeing how they could help us and even the city. So I think it really helps nonprofits go from that reactive standpoint to really being more proactive and understanding there are a lot of resource untapped resources that are available to them. I, again, love your social impact model. So, and moving from nonprofit to social impact and really utilizing that as the model. So can you talk a little bit more about that model that you've created and why it's important now? Well, it, it all comes down to mindset. And, you know, I tell my students, I teach business students and I tell them, you know, everything's about mindset. Everything's about mindset. And the mindset of a lot of failing organizations is this idea that I'm climbing this mountain alone. And once I get funding, you know, God will shine down on me and everything will be great. And I will be able to serve my mission and I will help these, you know, these poor people because it's always patronizing from that standpoint when you're that kind of a founder. Right. And it's, it's, everything is backwards in that model. Whereas in the social impact model, it's not about looking down on people, these poor people I want to help. It's about how can I serve this community with this mission and who do I need to partner with to make that happen? What resources can I find lying around, you know, either from the people that I'm, I'm here to, to work with or the, the organizations that are already here or the government that's here or the churches that are here, the mosques, the synagogues, the other faith-based organizations, 
I mean, we forget that there's all these resources around us. There's schools, there's government, there's faith-based, there's other nonprofits, there's there's just all these resources that are available that we are usually leaving on the table. So if we, in my model, it's about, it's about identifying what the need is first and then gathering allies to that need. And through those allies, putting a plan together, doing the work, talking about the work that you've done, which brings more allies and then repeats the whole cycle, might identify new needs. So, so that you're, you're growing in kind of a spiral up with your mindset, always focused on, you know, fixing that mission, doing that mission. And once we serve that mission, then a new opportunity will arise. It's all about opportunity and not scarcity. Yes. I love that, that you focus on the mindset. Cause like you said, a lot of nonprofits operate out of that scarcity mindset, but we need to move to that abundance mindset. You mentioned, you said a lot of important things, but you mentioned really doing the work and then telling the stories. Like what's the most effective way to tell the story so that the funding does come in or the opportunities do come in? Yeah, so so in the research I did, I studied 6,500 nonprofits in, in three counties, Orange County, San Bernardino County, and Riverside County, which when you take them together are a microcosm of the United States. And 6,500 organizations during the recession, only 29 organizations grew from small to large. So it was pretty easy group to, to interview and talk to and research and find out about. But when you're looking at this small group of people who are going against the trend, they're, you know, they all have pretty much the same thing in common. They're looking for opportunity. So right now, look at, we're, we're in the same situation right now with COVID. You know, COVID hit and a lot of people went into the scarcity mindset. They went into, you know, oh, we're going to have to cut back. We're going to have to do this. But the people who are that small group that are that are growing and and I hate the word pivot, but that's what you know everybody had to do, right? Those people that did that, they they did it because they weren't thinking about how this was a terrible thing affecting them. They thought about this is an opportunity for us to do some of those things we wanted to do online and never got to do. This is an opportunity for us to think in a different way about our programs. This is an opportunity to get an audience we've never gotten before. And, you know, I spent some time with them last year on my podcast with some of these people who did really well at moving things. So there was a soccer group who wanted to have an online soccer program available to schools and everybody was saying no 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 and then covid hit well guess what it's a great time to start an online soccer program so they used it as an opportunity and was was able to pivot very quickly in covid because they had that plan in their back pocket there was a cultural center that wanted you know had all these old materials lying around that were going bad and they wanted to use them up and they were going to throw them away and when covid hit they decided to put together art kits that they could send home with people in a drive through window and that became their new model for the next you know two years so and they they started with kids and they went to seniors and then now they're doing several cities of it so it's those people that say hey, this isn't all bad. This is an opportunity for us to think about things differently. And I see that in my in my own college. You know, people are still freaking out about COVID all over the school systems. 
But there's a small group of people that are saying, hey, here's an opportunity for us to learn better online, to have more classes online. This is what students want who are working. They want hybrid classes where they can come in for some classes, but do others online that fits better with their work schedule. So this is the future. We're, we're going to be hybrid from now on. Everybody's comfortable online now. So, you know, it's just that changing that mindset to where's the opportunity in this crisis? Because there's that great quote from Kennedy that the Chinese characters for crisis is this is the, I'm uh, sorry, the Chinese character for disaster or something is is crisis plus opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I love that mindset and I love that approach to how how nonprofits can navigate crisis crises or challenges and really turn them into opportunities. So. Is there anything else that you want people to know about your approach to social impact and why it's important now? Obviously, you mentioned that, you know, with COVID, there has been a lot of opportunity for people to kind of change the game and be really agile with their approach. But any last thoughts? Well, a couple of things. The the idea that a lot of small organizations have is that all I need is that one grant and then I'll be great because I'll get all these grants and all this money will pour in. They forget that grants are based on track record and grants are also for a, usually for seed money of a program that's one to three years and then the grant expires. What they should be looking for is contracts, not grants. So you, you get a grant maybe to try something out and then you develop it into a contract with government with schools say like we had steam programs we got a few grants to do some steam programs once we proved the concept then we went out looking for contracts with school districts for those programs the same with galas the big gala is time consuming and usually loses money and takes a lot of staff time what's better is smaller do-it-yourself events that are done by constituent groups so the people that that are on your board they put together event the people who are your volunteers maybe put together event. Maybe you have some some supporters in the community put together events. So the smaller events are much. Having twelve small events is way easier to manage than one big event, especially if different groups are doing them. So, you know that that's all kind of advice. If people want to be a social impact leadership fellow like you were, the Gianneschi Center's last class, that at least the last one that's scheduled. Uh, with me teaching it is for, is on May 11th and it runs on Wednesdays from 3 to 6 p.m. on Zoom. So it's you can do it from home and you can find information on that at the GeneSU website or my website. There's a link to it, uh, zootbelasco.com. And the same with my book. You can also, everything that we have been doing in the training is now in the book. So you can, you can also buy the book the book is $42 for the hard copy, but it's $21 for the ebook. And I would suggest getting the ebook because there's templates in there that you can use that are easier to download from the ebook. So all of that is all of that is good. And yeah, I guess that I guess that pretty much covers it. <laughs> well, I will link to all of that in the show notes. And I could literally talk about this all day with you. But thank you so much for being here. You are such a gift to me and the community and all of the leaders that you have trained up through the social impact model. And I just thank you so much for everything that you offer and your just wisdom and knowledge about all things social impact. 
Well, you were a fantastic fellow. We loved having you in our fellowship program. And I'm glad it was so helpful for what you're doing. And I love that you're spreading the word about that because it's important for people whose job is fundraising to know that is really their job really is resource raising and there's a difference. And that's what we've been talking about. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you're interested in learning more, just click again, click the link. Thank you. If you have valued these stories or learned something from what you've heard, please share this podcast episode or follow me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your support. And together we can build a better community and world.